1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Uh, Father God, um, as uh, Ben said earlier on, there's some pretty personal and challenging things in this passage. Uh, so we do thank you that you are a good God who always wants the best for us, never the worst. And we pray that as we look at this passage this morning, you will help us to hear what you have to say to us from it. And that we would know what your best for us is, the story of the best possible life that you long for us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me tell you a story. It's a story of Harry the Penguin. And Harry the Penguin lived in Antarctica, which may not sound like a great place to live to you, but to Harry, it was like paradise. It was beautiful. There were plenty of fish in the sea. And he loved being in the penguin community, huddling together cozily on those cold winter nights. And it was safe. There were no lumbering seals or walruses who were going to gobble them up standing there. But Harry was fascinated by the icebergs that used to float past Antarctica. <laughs> they looked fun. And so one day, Harry put a foot on a passing iceberg. But he kept one foot safely on land. Now, penguins aren't well known for being the most flexible of animals, are they? They don't have the longest of legs. But Harry the penguin was a remarkable penguin. And so as the iceberg started to drift off from the land, he stretched his legs, his incredibly stretchy legs, further and further and further and further until a point of choice came, 
and he realized if he wanted an adventure, he had to jump. And so off he went on that iceberg and was eaten by a shark. And what I want to say to you this morning is, don't be like Harry the Penguin. Now, that might not have been the message you're expecting in church when you set out to come here this morning. But as we dive back into this series we've been having from 1 Corinthians, this, this term, we find that the Apostle Paul wants to say exactly the same thing to us. Don't be like Harry the Penguin. Not in exactly those kind of words, though, but sometimes we can have our, live with our feet planted on two grounds. The one foot on the safe, firm ground of the kingdom of God, where we find forgiveness and new life with Jesus the King as King of the kingdom and eternal safety with him, but with another foot stepping out into a life that completely ignores what King Jesus has to say so that over time we drift further and further away from him. And when we do that, we're being just like the Corinthians. As we've been seeing over the last few weeks, that they've got one foot in God's kingdom, but they've also got one foot planted in stubborn disobedience, open disobedience to King Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 1, there's incest in the church, and they're proud of it. Chapter 6, verse 8, they're ripping one another off, and they don't find, see, see any problem with that either. Which is why Paul writes here, in chapter 6, verse 9, do you not know? In fact, he'll say that four times. Don't you know? You've got to get your belief right on this, folks. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And like a loving father, seeing one of his children about to do something exceedingly dangerous, not like kind of stepping out onto an iceberg, but you know, grabbing a knife from a work service or, or touching a, a hot stove, Paul shouts out two loving warnings to the Corinthians. Here's the first one. Don't be deceived. Let's back up for a moment and run through the whole of verse 9. Paul says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Suppose looking to the future, to that great day when God's kingdom will be fully established and Christians will get to inherit and enjoy it. What will that kingdom be like? Well, the future kingdom is all the good that G King Jesus did in his life. But 100% everywhere, all of the time. It will be completely perfect. The future is bright. As we get to know God face to face and enjoy all of the blessings and the riches that implies. And so Paul says, don't you know... <laughs> The future is so bright that sin has no place in it. And so those who pursue sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now we need to make it clear that when Paul talks about the unrighteous here in verse 9, or wrongdoers as the little footnote in our Bible's office as an alternative translation, he isn't talking about anyone who does anything wrong. No. We're all tempted to sin, and we all stumble in many ways. 
But the focus here is more on the unashamed going after what we know God is not for. We all have desires affected by sin, but the issue here isn't do you sin? But when you do, do you take it to Jesus and confess it and ask him for forgiveness like we did earlier on in our service? Or do you hold on to it and live in it so that those sins that are mentioned in verses 9 and 10 become a way of life for you? I wonder, maybe, is there some area of sin that you have ring-fenced from King Jesus? Is there something that you know is wrong, but you just won't let him deal with it? Well, Paul says, don't be deceived. Those who pursue sin have no place in the kingdom of God. But you do. Do you see that in verse 11? And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How wonderful is that? It's not that sinners like you and and me have gone too far to be able to enter the kingdom of God. Astonishingly, we are exactly the kind of people who can enter. If, if we turn to Jesus, if we turn to Jesus and confess our sin rather than hold on to it, then the Holy Spirit takes hold of us and works such a deep change in us that we come out as new people. The Holy Spirit, do you see, washes us. Our entire moral track record is wiped clean by forgiveness, cleansing us of all, our, of all of our guilt. And the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, which basically means that we're set apart to belong to God and live for him. And the Holy Spirit justifies us, making us right with God, so we no longer have his judgment hanging over us. I'm sure it hasn't escaped your notice that um, a certain World Cup started back on Thursday. So if ever there was time for a football-related illustration, it is now. But whether there's a World Cup in the summer or not, every summer, uh, various different players get transferred from one club to another for ridiculous sums of money, don't they? Last year, it was um, this guy, Neymar, for 200 million pounds. I don't know who it's going to be this year. But folks, when we turn to Christ, it's like we get a change of teams. We're transferred from the unrighteous to the righteous. We've been transferred into the kingdom of God at the most ridiculous price, the cost of his own son dying on a cross so that you and I could be forgiven and made new. And so we're no longer playing for the kingdom of me, just seeking to satisfy our desires. We play for him. We live for him now. And that's what happened to the Corinthians. But some of them hadn't fully comprehended the incredible miracle God had done in their lives and kept falling back into their old sinful habits. They kept scoring own goals for the opposition, if you like, because they've been deceived into thinking that because they've been forgiven, it didn't matter what they did now, not least in the area of sex. And so Paul says, secondly, flee sexual sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. 
I've been having to go to a physio class uh, for a problem with my right hip recently. And the first time I went, it was just me um, and a whole load of gray heads, about um, load of pe uh, seven people kind of 15, 20 years older than me. And we had to do a warm-up uh, before we did our exercises uh, so that we wouldn't break our delicately malfunctioning bodies. And so we had to kind of march around the room, lifting our knees and swinging our arms. But the physio insisted uh, that we couldn't do that without warm-up music. You can't have warm-up without warm-up music. So on went the boogie box and out bled the pussycat dolls. Now, I'm sure you're aware of the works of the pussycat dolls, but just in case you are not, just imagine me and all these gray heads, all these old people, wandering around the room, marching around. I, you know I want it. I want it too. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? Don't you wish your girlfriend was fun like me? Don't you? Don't you? I tell you, it was the most weird experience of my life ever. But incredibly, incredibly, nobody... See, that's another thing you weren't expected when you, left, when you left your house earlier on this morning. But incredibly, nobody else batted an eyelid. They didn't. And I, I was thinking about it. Why did we all just do this? And my guess was that there are sexually suggestive messages everywhere now, aren't there? You're on the TV, the internet, billboards, you name it. It's there. It's in the ether. It's like the air that we breathe. And if you think that back in the Corinthians day it was any different, you'd be seriously mistaken. The town was known throughout the ancient world for their free and easy attitude to sexual activity, mainly because at the back of the town, up on the hill, stood the great temple of Epaphrodite, with something like a thousand temple prostitutes in it. And every evening, they would come down off the hill, men and women prostitutes, they would come down off the hill and into the town in order to offer the inhabitants sexual release. Maybe you notice back in verses 9 and 10 that those in the Corinthian church had been very sexually active before they became Christians, satisfying whatever sexual desires they had. And the whole culture around them encouraged them to keep on pursuing these desires. And so as a result, the Corinthians had all kinds of wrong ideas about sex. Can you see what they said about sex in verse 12? All things are lawful for me. That's what people were saying in Corinth. And isn't that what the kind of thing that people say in our day too? As long as you're not harming anything, you have a right to do anything you want. But Paul says, the question isn't so much, am I hurting anyone? But is this doing good? Is it beneficial and helpful for others? Not just now, but in the long term. Folks, for all the talk about free sex in our culture, there is always a cost. And we all know people have been hurt and wounded massively in this area. But still the Corinthians come back. All things are lawful for me. I have the right to do anything. But Paul says, your proclaimed freedom is actually slavery. You are being mastered by your desires and your appetites. I mean, do you ever find yourself in a position where you feel you just can't say no to your partner, to the internet? Do you ever feel under pressure to condone or even celebrate what Jesus challenges or condemns. That isn't freedom. 
Now you might say to me, this is the problem with Christians. You're just so negative about sex. Well, I want to say, the Bible is really clear that sex is a good thing. But it's also really clear that sex is a thing that's only good in marriage. In fact, the Bible suggests that sex is like fire. It's only good when it's in its rightful place. So fire's great, isn't it, when it's on candles or in your wood burner or oven. But it's not great if it's up the curtains or on the sofa or on my trousers. No, that's terrible. And sex is like that. God has placed it in the safe confines of a committed, self-sacrificing to one another, lifelong union between one man and one woman. Because God doesn't want to kill our joy. He merely wants to protect it. Now, it might be that you're not entirely convinced by that. The Corinthians certainly were. They come back yet again in verse 13. Oh, come on. Sex is just a bodily appetite, you know. So if you're hungry, have a sandwich. If you're horny, have some sex. It doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. Because, hey, at the end of the day, they're just going to be destroyed when we go to heaven. It's just our souls that will go. It's the souls that matter, not our bodies. But Paul says, no, 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 no. Don't be down in your body. Because your body is not your body. It's his body. And he gives us five key beliefs. Don't you know? Remember four times here. Don't you know five things you need to know, believe, about your bodies and why it matters what you do with them so that you won't shipwreck your lives and your faith on the rocks of sexual immorality. Here's number one. Your body was made for the Lord. Verse 13, do you see? The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. You were made for the Lord, both body and soul. You're not just some kind of highly evolved animal who happens to have physical appetites and desires. No, you were made for him to be like him. And he's for you, do you see? He's the only one who can satisfy you fully. Two, your body will be raised with him, verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up, uh, raise us up by his power. When Jesus rose from the dead, what was raised? Just his soul? Ah, I'm done with the body, let's leave that. No, his body rose too. God is not going to destroy the body. He raised Jesus' body and he will raise and transform our bodies too, so that we will have glorious bodies for all eternity. Is number three, your body is joined to him. Verse 15, do you see, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Look at your body. These hands, they're Christ. These eyes, they're Christ. These feet, they're Christ. And all the other bits too. They are part of Christ. So why would you take him into sexual union where he does not belong? For your body is home for him, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? When the temple of God in the Old Testament was finished, the fire of God came down and filled it. 
And that's now you. The burning purity of God now dwells in you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And then five, your body was bought by him. Verse 20, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. A friend of mine's mom has this really weird habit. She goes to the dump to dump rubbish. That's not weird at all, actually. That's a fairly normal kind of thing to do. Uh, but the people who work at the dump, they fish out things that other people have thrown away, um, and uh, uh, they try to sell them. And my friend's mom, every time she visits, cannot resist buying some stuff from this pile. It drives my mate nuts. He tries to plead with her. He goes, Mom, you are buying rubbish. <laughs> you are literally buying something that someone else thought was so worthless that they threw it away. And I want to say that that's exactly what Jesus has done for us. Despite all of our failure, all of our sin, our sexual sin and all the other sin as well, despite all of our dirtiness and our uncleanness and malfunctioning as a result, despite the fact that we're ultimately worthless, he went to the cross and he gave his body to pay the price to buy your body and my body back to God. Therefore, your body is not your body. It's his body because he paid for it in love. He bought it at a price. So let's finish with Paul's application at the beginning of verse 18. Flee, <laughs> flee sexual immorality. What a build up to that, but that, that's where we've got to go. This teaching that our bodies matter, that they belong to the Lord, leads to radical action. It leads to us running. I once went on a holiday camp as a teenager, and on that camp, in my adolescent arrogance, I was chased by a bull. I thought the farmer was lying when I saw that sign on the fence saying, beware of the bull. But as I got halfway across the field, I discovered he was not. <laughs> and I'll tell you, one thing I did when I was being chased by that bull was not stop and negotiate. I did not stop and negotiate. No, I ran as fast as my little legs would carry me. You see, there are no gains to be had in stopping in the danger zone. You just run and you do not look back. But the problem is that so many of us shipwreck our lives and our faith by stopping and trying to negotiate with temptation. So one classic question that often gets asked in this area is, how far can we go physically before marriage? But Paul is saying here, come on. The question should be much more, how far should we run from sexual sin? Because sexual intercourse and all the many intimacies leading up to it all belong to the territory of marriage. The intimacy of a committed, loving union for life. So don't flirt with it. Run from it. And if you're already married, let me say this to you. I don't think anyone wakes up one day and says, you know what? I think I'm going to have an affair with someone at work. I think that happens very rarely. I think this is much more what happens. You've been getting to know a work colleague and they smile at you and you smile back and you go, oh, hello, that was nice. That's the moment, that's it. 
that's the moment you flee. That's when you get your trainers on and you run. That moment where you go, oh, hello, something's happening here. Because a text will follow, and then a series of texts. And then there'll be a coffee, and two or three coffees, and then there'll be lunch, and then there'll be dinner, and then there'll be a night in his or her bed. We are kidding ourselves if we don't think that that could happen to us. Sexual desire is such a powerful thing if we stand around and we can negotiate with it. And I would plead with you for the love of your wife or husband, for the love of your children, for the love of your future spouse or kids, for the love of Jesus. Would you flee sexual immorality? Run from it, not to it. And so if you are struggling with pornography, as so many do, find a way to flee. Perhaps that means you need to get rid of internet from your flat. But I couldn't cope without internet in my flat. Okay, well negotiate with the bull and get gorged. Come on, do you not know, says Paul? But I couldn't cope without a smartphone. Seriously, couldn't you? If it's a problem, we need to take radical action and get as far away from sin as possible. And as we do, we will not flee going, oh, this is miserable, this is ruining my life. No, as we flee, we will be liberated. We will be freed to honor God with our bodies, to become everything that we were made by him to be, that we were saved by him to be. And you will not be disappointed. In eternity, you will not look back and go, oh, I wished I'd had way more sexual experiences than I did. I, I, I wish I'd had some sex at all. No, you'll be so glad you waited, you resisted, and that you ran to Jesus. So why not make today a flag in the sand kind of day? What if today was the day when you said, from this day forward, because my body is his body, I'm going to trust in him and live for him. Holy Spirit, please help me. And maybe as you do that, you might need to talk to somebody. Maybe there's someone here who you trust to whom you could say, please help me, please pray for me. Maybe you need to have a chat with myself or one of the staff team, though, later on in the week. Please do come and see us and arrange to do that. We'd love to help. And folks, we're all going to fail again in this area. But failure isn't fatal. Forgiveness is forever. So when you do fail, please be quick to get up and look up at Jesus and see there his smiling face as he looks down at us and, and says, my precious child, please let me help you. And you'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. How could I have done this again? And he will say, this is what I died for. Let me wash you. Let me sanctify you. Let me justify you. Let me get you all cleaned up and back on your feet again. Folks, I'm so thankful for the mercies of Christ. I hope you are too. So don't be deceived. Flee sexual immorality. Honor God. Glorify God with your bodies. Let me pray. Let me pray for us.
Father God, please help us to do this. And we pray that you would forgive us for all the times that we have failed in it. Even in this past week or maybe even days perhaps, we thank you so much for these wonderful words that reassure us that we can be washed every day in the blood of Christ. We thank you that there is forgiveness and a fresh start for each one of us. But we all feel the, feel the pull of compromise, whether in our actions or in our thinking. So we pray that you would help us to honor you with our bodies and our minds and to believe that your ways are always the best ways for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just two uh, final things I want to say is... Um, one, one, you might not be a Christian, and that might have all come as a little bit um, of a surprise to you. You might never have heard anything like that before. Um, so can I recommend, well, you maybe come and chat to myself or Ben at the end of the service if you've got any questions. Or um, I take away one of these Why Jesus books, which just shows how Jesus can be trusted with everything in our lives because of what he's done for us. Uh, the other thing is, um, let me just reinforce, if you do need to chat to someone, then please do take that opportunity either today or later on during uh, the week. Um, uh, yeah, do try and get some, some help. And one of the things that might really help you is do a bit further reading. There's so much more that could have been said. I know that was actually a really long sermon. I apologize for that. It was not nearly as long as it was after I'd written that. I t- cut lots of bits out um, that needs further explanation. But why not um, uh, take up that challenge to, 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 to look into things further? On the back of this uh, outline, there's loads of further resources that could be helpful.